Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the, to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And so with that, Aaron, you're up this week. Mm-hmm. What are you bringing to the table today? I have an article called What Abolitionists Do. So that's what I'm bringing to the table. Yes. Um, it is a piece that was actually written in response to someone uh, criticizing abolition as a lofty, unattainable, like ridiculous thing to um, consider or pursue or like organize around. Yeah. Um, and so the critique was framed as if abolitionists just want to tear down prisons tomorrow and not take a measured long-term approach uh, that would give time to build something new uh, to replace it that wouldn't be rooted in punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what the that's what the piece is really about. Yeah, um, is the sort of response to that uh, idea um, or quote unquote critique. Yes. Um, uh, of the prison industrial complex abolition. Um, so this piece was written by Miriam Kaba, yes. um, a now well-known organizer who has written and spoken about abolition extensively. We've talked about her before on the show. Yes. Um, we, we read her book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Um, you know, great, great person to uh, learn from. Yes. And then joining her uh, in the article is Dan Berger, who at least at the time that this was written, um, right, which was 2017, uh, Dan was an associate professor of comparative ethnic studies at the University of Washington, Bothell, uh, and David Stein, a lecturer in African-American studies and history at UCLA. Um, And so I really appreciated this article because, as I said just a minute ago, it refuted this whole notion um, of the article that it was responding to around abolition being impractical. Um, And, you know, uh, it ignores the the original article kind of ignores the real on the ground organizing that people are doing to help decrease the power of the prison industrial complex. Um, And I think this article does a great job of laying out some of the history of abolitionist movements Uh, um, Mm -hmm. and the way kind of social change has worked in the the past Mm -hmm. um, to some of the ways that current abolitionists are putting in work to get us away from and find new things to replace the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's it's an incredible piece. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you that you found it. And, and, you know, I think like you and like what you said, you know, I think it definitely achieved this goal of addressing the, like how you said, quote unquote critiques uh, that yeah. were sort of that were out there at the time. And I think to some degree, you know, still exist um, today about what abolition is and what abolitionists are trying to achieve. Um, and so, you know, I really one of the things I really appreciated about uh, this piece actually was a quote at the very beginning of the article that I think sort of put all of this plainly right and put it in context. It said, and I quote, prison abolitionists aren't naive dreamers. They're organizing for more concrete reforms animated by a radical critique of state violence. Mm. You know, and I just think that that was and is such a powerful statement in truth. Right. For so many reasons. I think it's absurd to call abolitionists naive or really sort of, in my opinion, critique the work they are trying to do and the real change they are demanding, because I think the evidence that our systems aren't working at this point is crystal clear, right? Um, 
you know, I know all of these things are sort of related and connected, but I want to name them, right? We're talking about the prison industrial complex. We're talking about our criminal punishment system. We're talking about law enforcement, public safety, state violence, right? Like we have countless examples of how these systems aren't effective, right? Mm -hmm. And how they do more harm than good. And they're not helping us address and make positive change to the conditions in our society that truly need repair. Um, and so, again, I think this article really hit the nail on the head in sort of addressing particularly that article that it was responding to, but many of the, the critiques out there um, around um, abolition, right? And I know you agree with that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's um, one of the reasons why I brought this to the table is like just the way that they addressed those things. Um, and I think that... Uh, Having read Maryam Kaba's work before, yeah. right, I was also attracted to this piece um, because in that book, I think, which is a collection of essays, yeah. um, she writes out how, you know, the this current systems are failing us in different ways. Um, and I think one of the one of the pieces, early points that the article makes is that people criticize prison abolition without really understanding what it means, yes. which I, is why I say like you know, quote unquote critiques. Because ah, yes. I think that you, if you critique something without really understanding what it is, it's not really a critique then. It's a- You have right. no right to a critique. Right, it's point. it's a mis it's your misunderstanding. Yes. Um, so I know we've talked about this here before, uh, but I think it bears repeating that abolition of the prison industrial complex is really about taking a look at all of the ways, as you said, our current criminal punishment system is failing communities and not producing- the justice that it claims to produce. Ah, that's a good point of that too, right? Producing the justice, yes, that it claims right. to do. Ah. Uh, so I think abolitionists are really focused on building the world we all deserve. Um, and I think that means finding ways to provide the basics that everyone needs to thrive in their communities. Um, you know, it's about finding our mutual uh, interests and, uh, and shifting our thought processes from competition and punishment um, to more sort of collaborative natures, right? Yeah. Especially when we think about punishment, usually that comes at the hands of the state when we're straying from the rules and regulations and expectations that are set up in our communities that are meant to sort of keep us in boxes and mm -hmm. sort of control us in different ways. Confine us, yeah. Um, yeah, and so the, the authors define abolitionist reforms. Um, so these are things that organizers are doing on the ground that are actual real life examples of, of things, um, progress towards abolition as measures that reduce the power of an oppressive system while illuminating the system's inability to solve the crises that it creates. And so that's what abolitionist reforms are. Yeah. Um, and that's what people are working toward in a variety of communities across uh, the United States and, and across the globe, really. Yeah. I mean, uh, folks, I don't know if you can tell, but clearly... We both agree, like with this idea uh, and and importance and and like really the necessity of abolition, right? Um, and so I, I I definitely appreciated their definition of that. And so I'm glad that you shared that here, right? Like, what are we doing to sort of reduce the power, take power away from these oppressive systems that really are not serving us uh, one bit? Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of one piece of this that uh, absolutely stood out for me. I'm glad we shared that. You know, I one of the other things that stood out to me in this piece was, you know, that that quote that you mentioned, right? Because I think, you know, it it just reinforces why it needs 
to go, right? Like why the prison industrial complex, why, you know, these systems need to go, right? I think that's really the only way forward. Um, you know, these things and efforts that we can do to reduce the power of these oppressive systems, like I said, that don't serve us, right? That create more problems in our society that don't keep us safe, right? And so um, in this piece, they quote the late Rose Braz from uh, Critical Resistance, um, and they, they quote her a lot, right? I think in an interview that she had done um, in a couple of other, other places. Um, and really, she, our goal, as she puts it, and I, and I agree, is really to fight for real social change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're if we are actually about that and want to do that, um, then we have to embrace abolition. Yeah, and I think that um, there's an argument out there now about um, sort of considering more reforms to the current system, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that. Um, I understand that line of thinking uh, because it's less um, uh, scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more familiar, right? Um, but we've been doing reforms to the way that the system has been working for centuries. Yep, forever. Um, <laughs> and it's still doing what it's doing. Yep. Um, in fact, we're making like we're making it more perfect, right? We're making it easier to create harm and and not uh, justice the more that we reform it. Right. Um, right. Like women's prisons were a reform. And now we have how many millions of women locked up yeah. uh, in the United States. So, you know, we did reforms. We've been doing reforms. Um, and so now it's time to think about reforms that create something new. Yes. Um, and not reinforce what we have. Um, Absolutely. You know, and one of the other things that stood out to me here was this connection to broader historical movements uh, like the abolition of enslavement in the U.S. and women's suffrage and the labor movement and civil rights. Yeah. Um, and so the, the article says that responding to abolition as a, like a, a goal that for organizing that's unlikely to resonate with the public at large isn't how social change happens. Right. So yeah. just because the the public at large is not on board with something, the public at large wasn't on board with those other things, really. Right. Yep. Um, you, know, I, you know, this is a slightly different example. But if you look at the popularity of Martin Luther King mm. before he was uh, murdered. Like he was not popular with the larger public. Yeah. Um, and now he's a sort of well-regarded hero across most of the world um so you know they they um cite some examples that i just mentioned about you know abolition of enslavement and and, uh, civil rights as well um as sort of concepts or goals right that weren't accepted by the public at large they write um that most abolitionists in our experience would subscribe to Nelson Mandela's adage that it only seems impossible until it's done, mm. which I think rings so true to me, especially yeah. when you think about like women's suffrage, you think about civil rights, you think about the abolition of enslavement. It was all that people knew in the country yes. until we didn't know it anymore and had to find something different. Yep. Um, and now we mess that up royally. Uh. Um, and we're still paying for those like you know, reconstruction falling apart. We're still paying for that today. Yeah. But, um, right. It didn't seem possible until it was right. Um, 
And so I think we have to continue to experiment and build, um, which is what we talked about when we read, we do this till we free us. Um, we have to give communities the opportunities to do things like mental health intervention teams mm, yes. um, that are sent to mental health crisis calls to 911 instead of police, police right? Yeah. Like we have to do things like that to find ways to shift away from um, police and prisons being a catch-all for all of the social ills that we have, yeah. um, which is a paraphrase of something they said in the article too. Right, absolutely. Like, what are the things that we need that will serve us in those moments, right? Yes. Um, absolutely. I, yeah, I absolutely appreciated the connections that were made in this piece to those, you know, historical time periods and, and, and movements, as you mentioned, like abolishing slavery and the civil rights movement and women's suffrage and, and even the labor movement, right? Because I think there's such a clear connection that can be made between the power and persistence and, and time and energy and, and need for radical ideas and reforms, right? That it took mm -hmm. for the organizers uh, of those sort of fighting in those movements, uh, all of those connect, all that connects to what abolition requires, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I think the other related point that's in my mind about this and um, is that none of this is easy, right? It's really difficult work, and as you said, right, we could at, at the time of these things we couldn't imagine anything else because it's all we knew. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it absolutely takes a tremendous amount of fortitude and commitment and imagination, which I know is, you know, uh, Miriam Kaba, you know, she talks a lot about imagination. Right. Um, from all of us and, and certainly from our government and our systems. Right. To sort of be able to enact what abolitionists are seeking to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. I think part of it, too, is that the way that government works has to change radically mm. too. So it's not, it's not just about what we have now there, yes. but also about major changes there fundamentally. Yes. Um, well, that's a whole episode in itself, huh? Yeah. Uh -huh. Um, <laughs> so another thing that stuck out to me, another line that okay. stuck out to me in this piece was um, where they said, while one could find quote unquote evangelical zeal among any political movement, it is inaccurate to cast abolitionists as opposed to incremental change. Rather, abolitionists have insisted on reforms that reduce rather than strengthen the scale and scope of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. I think that's so true, right? Yeah. Like that's what we've been, that's sort of a theme I've been hitting on. Um, as I think back to this article, um, you know, and I, it makes me think back to a time when I was chatting with somebody, um, just like, I think on, Instagram DMs or something. I don't remember where it was. Um, but it was a sort of random chat. And, I, and we were talking about the conversation somehow came to abolishing the police. Mm. Um, and they replied uh, that they didn't want a bunch of laid off angry cops running around communities tomorrow. Yeah. Um, which I was like, well, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, I can see that. Right. Because um, I didn't want to get into it over whatever platform we were talking. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is a this is a conversation face to face and we're not face to face. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that that's what abolitionists are talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think turning around and firing all the cops today. So they can run around and do what like cause whatever havoc is in this person's imagination tomorrow is what anyone is really advocating for. No, um, I think part of abolition would, as this quote says, 
be slowly and incrementally replacing the police with something else so that these folks who do work for departments and the variety of ways that you could work for a law enforcement department yep. would have the ability to find something else to do. Um, yeah. It's, you know, like it's finding ways as they say to reduce the scale and scope of policing, imprisonment and surveillance. Yes. Um, it's not about flipping a switch and shutting everything down tomorrow without acknowledging the realities of, of what that all would mean for us long term. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great story, right? I think it's a, cause it's a great illustration of like real life application of yeah. what ab abolition is and, and looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. And this isn't even an application yet, uh, but we're talking about <laughs> it. Uh, it's true. Right. But I appreciate that story. Right. And yeah. I would, I would even take it a step further. Right. I think one of the big tenets of abolition is the reduction of harm mm. in and to our communities. Right. And so in this conversation you were having about abolishing the police or in this, in, in, in general, in the conversation around abolishing the police. Right. I, I think part of reducing harm absolutely means that we're not just going to lay off or fire police officers. And as you said, all of the sort of folks who work in all the various arms of, of law enforcement with like the snap of a finger. Right. right. Because that in and of itself would cause real harm. And I think it would be, you know, um, like an active force against whatever abolitionist reforms we're trying to enact in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's important to sort of note and to really think about, right? Because I think that's part of this conversation um, that we're having in the in the context of what abolition is and what it means, right? And yeah. um, that it, it, it both of those things have to be true, and it is sort of slow, sustained work, right? And it takes this imagination to think about all of the pieces of that. What does it mean if we abolish the police and policing in this country? Who are all the players involved and what does that mean for them, right? Like that takes time and energy as well as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't uh, want to sound dismissive of this sort of thought process or argument against abolition because that, um, I think that argument is grounded in history, right? Like ah. we have seen over the course of history in the United States where entire groups of people get laid off and just sort of patted on the back and sorry sent on their way good luck out there uh -huh. um right and so it's also grounded in that reality and that history that I think a lot of folks have lived yes um of you know factories shutting down and just saying yep sorry we're moving somewhere else yep um and so I, I do understand it. And I think that that, you know, that is it's also a part of abolition to think about like the impact on people. Yes. Um, as well um, to to not have sort of a backslide or well, I don't know, whatever might happen from just laying everybody off tomorrow. Right. Um, yeah. Another thing that stuck out to me in the article is about California. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, and how they built 23 new prisons between 1983 and 1999. Say that one more time. 23 prisons. Yep. Between 83 and 99. So that's 16 years. Yeah. 23 prisons. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, you know, that's a lot of prisons. Yes. It's one and a half a year, I yeah. think, almost. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If they built 24, it would have been one and a half every year. Yeah. Um, mm. So that's a lot of investment into a system that isn't doing anything except for locking people away. Yes. Um, mm. You know, and it makes me wonder, 
right? If we could speculate a little bit, what would what could we do with that money if we could go back in time and spend that same money on programs that would provide people with good jobs mm. and healthcare and access to education? Like, how would our country be different? Because we're like talking a, millions of dollars, Mi- probably billions, billions like right? For twenty three prisons, prisons? yeah. Um. Mm. So, well, and and in today's money, definitely billions, yes. right? Um, absolutely. But. And I know California is just one state, but it's the biggest um, in terms of population. Uh, And so what would the impact be on our country if just California hadn't done that, right? Let alone if other states hadn't done that. I think that that's, it's mind boggling to think about what we could have spent that money on um, outside of prisons and and the the industrial complex and the whole system around it. Um, You know, we can't continue to spend at the same rates that we have in the past um, because it's a vicious cycle where we invest in prisons right and then we expect prisons to be filled yep right especially if they're private oh Um, yes and if we spend money on police we expect them to prove their worth so they find crime to prove that they're doing something for the communities that they're serving right so-called serving to then arrest those folks and put the put them in those prisons right and then you know, the way that government budgets work is that um, usually that money is then coming from some other program, right? So we're undercutting the funding of programs yeah. that would maybe keep people out of prisons yeah. to then put them into prison, right? So prison becomes this catch-all. And yeah. so we can't keep spending money f- fully in there to to solve problems that we're not solving currently with prisons, right? Yeah. Like I think that that's – it's it's – I don't know. Nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. What a ludicrous. What an what an incredible sort of case study. But also, like, if we could dream a bit about, you, like you said, just California alone. Right. You take those millions, uh, close to billions of dollars, and spend it in, and invest it instead, as you said, in like education, right? And sort mm-hmm. of all levels of education, right? Uh, you know, jobs, healthcare. Oh my goodness, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. what that would have done for us as a society, right? And thinking about sort of the investment in California, but people also grow up in places and leave those places and take ideas and the the benefits of those things like education and healthcare with them to other places. So yep. yeah, it's incredible to think about that. And, and certainly that's just, as you said, one example, right? Just the state of California. And so I think the same questions you ask could be applied to every other state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, does that mean? What could that have mean, uh, meant for, for us? And now, since we can't go back in time and we can't eliminate that, right? Like we got to move forward, right? right? And so abolition, uh, you know, this provides us with uh, an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing that I just thought about with, with building new prisons is that it's not like a one-year expense because you built it and now you got to mm. staff it. Um Yes. Right, and so that's also a continued drain on your state budget. Yeah, um, and you got to maintain right. it. And yeah, got, so there's yeah, ma- right, so it's not just a one-time expense, um, along with most other government programs. But right, if we're talking about how this doesn't solve problems, then right, yeah. Um, all right, let's shift a little bit and talk about application. All right, um, I'm thinking specifically about how these things play out in our local communities. Right, like I know mm. I'm just talking about California. We don't live there. Yeah. Um, 
But one of the examples of abolitionist work in campaigning is electing just district attorneys um, who want to fundamentally change the way that the law is applied in their districts, right? Yeah. So there's a big push, I think, from grassroots organizing um, movements to think about those local um, elections, elections, right? Um, whether they're district attorneys or sheriffs or, or whoever. Um Right. One of the examples that they gave was Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who mm. once elected was implemented a bunch of fundamental changes in the district. Um, you know, so pay, I think paying attention to what your city or county officials are doing is crucial to thinking about abolition. Yep. Um, defunding of the, the police is a slogan um, and it's a gradual thing. Right. Because if you think about it, I think I've said this before, we've been defunding education for yes. decades. Yes. So defunding the police like. You know, it's going to be incremental. It's probably going to be fairly slow, uh, but it's about funding other community needs that would provide for communities more effectively than more cops or more prisons and jails. Um, so these are concepts that are impacting our communities all around us. All around us. Yeah. I mean, you, without a doubt, we are on the same page about that. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I think there's so much application uh, from a piece like this one. Right. Uh, you know, for one, I think. There's some significant personal work and reflection that we can all do to sort of sit with and think about the history of abolition as it's sort of presented in this piece and as it's presented from a lot of these abolitionist scholars um, and folks doing this work, you know, and the successes of on the ground abolitionist work and efforts. Right. And and so much of those successes were highlighted in this piece. Right. You just mentioned Philadelphia, California. It also the article also referenced Chicago mm -hmm. um, as another example. Right. And so. I think in my mind, similar to your thinking here, right? Like as folks learn about these successes and the kind of effort it took to, to make them happen, right? I, I agree with you and think that a, a question and potential application of all of this is, you know, what do we need to do in our own backyards? What's happening in our own backyards? What do we need to do? You know, what is happening in your town or your county or your state um, yeah. that is continuing to enable some of these oppressive systems um, to, to do the harm that they're doing, right? And what are you and what are we doing to address that, right? What are the organizations that are out here working to address that and, and, and that are doing abolitionist work that you can support, right? Who are the candidates, as you mentioned, right, that believe in the power of abolition, have a vision for transformative change, you know, that, that we can support, right? I think anything we can think of, um, I think anytime we can think of application work that exists within our own sphere of influence, if you will, right? Or just like in our backyards, in our homes is certainly a great place to go. Yeah, absolutely. We make big changes by starting small and starting yes. locally. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, Good. let's talk homework. All right. Um, I think mine this week is to read some more of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work. Mm. Um, she's mentioned a few times in this article and has a book included here called Golden Gulag um, and an article called The Worrying State of the Anti-Prison Movement. Um, both of those are you know, not brand new, um, but both still really relevant. Um, so I want to dive a little bit more into her work. Um, I will also mention uh, for comedic effect, uh -huh. uh, there is a Twitter meme account called Ruth Wilson Gilmore Girls, <laughs> where they take quotes from uh. Ruth Wilson Gilmore and put them on screenshots of Gilmore Girls episodes. Oh, um, my so goodness. also that's funny if you, um, yeah, I if if you are are into uh, abolition. <laughs> 
and the Gilmore Girls, I guess. Yeah. But it, yeah. Yeah, it would yeah. be out of context for me because I've never seen a single episode of Gilmore Girls. But it, yeah. I, I kind of still want to check it out just because, yeah. you know, <laughs> what? How do you even do that? Uh, uh, I don't know. It's very, it's very entertaining. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I also think that we should probably add those things to our media list and maybe we bring mm-hmm. those to the table. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. I think for me... This week as homework, I want to learn more about uh, the co-authors of this piece, Dan Berger and and David Stein, right? Mm -hmm. And the work that they're doing, right? Like we obviously know a lot about and have read work by Miriam Kaba and she is incredible. Um, But this was the first time I've heard of those two folks. Um, As you know, I want to say this again, you mentioned earlier that Dan Berger was a professor of comparative ethnic studies at University of Washington Bothell and David Stein was a lecturer in African-American studies and, and history at UCLA. And, and so I think if they are writing a piece like this with the great Miriam Kaba, mm-hmm. all right, like I definitely want to look into what else they've potentially written about abolition and, and what other work they've done and, and in this sort of collective work we're all doing for social justice and collective liberation. So let's see what else they've got going on. Yeah. I think learning more about those two folks sounds like a great way to keep sort of the learning going yeah. on, on this whole thing. Um, all right. Well, Damien, you are up next time. Hey. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? It is me. All right. So next week, folks, I'm bringing um, a, a film to the table, and I'm hoping that uh, we can continue our conversation about abolition a little bit, if that works for you. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the film I'm going to bring uh, to the table is called Revisions of Abolition from Critical Resistance to a New Way of Life. And if you want to check it out with us, you can find it at visionsofabolition.org. Again, that's visionsofabolition.org. And full transparency, I have not watched it yet, but um, from the synopsis, you know, I think this film provides an abolitionist lens to the prison industrial complex and does this through the examination of formerly incarcerated women, which I think is obviously, you know, I don't think we talk enough about women, right? And particularly, you know, black and brown women, right, and and sort of how they are um, victims of this uh, of, of this criminal punishment system. Um, and so I sort of wanted to, I thought that was important to sort of bring up, and I think it talks a lot about critical resistance and the work that they're doing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this film and uh, us talking about it next time. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to, to watch that. Um, it looks like it's got some really great um, folks and... and um, Oh yeah, stories in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing. Um, even as I anticipate, they'll be enraging and heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. Um, still, I'm looking forward to discussing and um, and and seeing that film. Absolutely. All right. We want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what we're going to ask you to do here, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life, uh, give us a follow over on social media. Um, sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we got going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week.